0: Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: What's up, guys? Josh Pate here. It's not Late Kick Extra. It's not Late Kick Live. It is the first ever, but soon to be duplicated, Late Kick Show Owners Association. It is your show. It's not my show. I always say that to prove it to you, though. We're just doing a product right now that we're going to let you take over. We got a bunch of people in here who won the lottery. They submitted their emails after we got past 13,000 followers, rather, on Twitter, at Josh. by the way. We appreciate that, and so we're going to have some fun here. I'm not going to waste time. It's going to be Q&A. It's going to be conversational, and we'll see where this goes. So first up, Producer Jordan has teed up Josh Miller, who I just found out lives in Colorado. And so Josh Miller, what are we talking about to lead it off?
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, a lot of the big talk has been around transfers, and uh, we've seen multiple uh, college, uh, colleges pull in, you know, directors of transfer recruiting. So uh, with spring attrition happening every single year um, and new teams looking to find new ways to get higher tier guys. Uh, do you think that uh, places like um, like Oklahoma or Mizzou or even Kentucky uh, would look to uh, use this as kind of a, a third signing day, so to speak, um, heading into their seasons to, to try to make up for some of the loss that they, they can't, you know, because they cannot recruit Alabama, uh, you know, and, and the blue blood. So uh, how do you think that to, uh, schools like that are going to use um, transfer portal?
1: I think a lot of them right now, even up to and including the Oklahomas, as evidenced by this last offseason, like everyone, everyone initially, when they heard the idea of transfer portal, like everyone said, we're going to own this thing. Everyone thinks they're going to own the transfer portal right now. Just like I guarantee you, everyone thinks they're going to own name, image and likeness. And then you're going to find out it's in some programs wheelhouses. It's not in others. But like the thing about it is, you mentioned probably intentionally, like the Missouris of the world. To me, that's who has to own it, man. Like that's we're not talking about them. I was sitting behind myself at this desk right here on signing day, and I remember Steve Wolfong and I talking about Oklahoma, talking about Bama. I don't think we mentioned Missouri a whole lot. Like I don't think we mentioned Virginia Tech a whole lot. Just to pull some some names out of the hat. Who do you pull for, by the way?
2: Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm a traditionally an Auburn fan. I kind of leaning more towards just a fan of sports these days. So, I don't want to pigeonhole myself. What does that mean? <laughs> like wait, 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 wait. What do you mean?
1: What do you like in 2010 did you also hold the opinion that you were kind of Auburn but you were largely
2: just a fan of sports? What changed? Uh, you know, being from Auburn, like that's that's home. So, I, I by default I'm an Auburn fan. So, but I mean, I guess as I've, I've gotten older, I've just I started lear- uh, learning to like football as a whole. So, even teams that I traditionally shouldn't pull for like, you know, the Alabamas and the Ohio States, uh, I just find myself watching their games uh, the same way with same enthusiasm that I I watch Auburn. So uh, I kind of declassify myself as just like an Auburn fan and kind of shift over to just, I was just like good football.
1: No, I got you. I got you. Well, so Auburn, like to wrap this one up, like Auburn, you know, like right now, one of the big talks, we were talking about it this morning in our meeting. One of the big talks right now is new coaching staffs Like they thought this stuff was going to loosen up. They thought they'd be able to be out on the road already and they're not. And so like Auburn's a perfect example of a program right now that they're having to rely on word of mouth from these Nike and Under Armour combines really, because they can't get in front of kids. Now it's, it's an asinine rule at this point, but it's the rule regardless. And so like right now, Brian Harson, here's something to watch. So we're talking about transfer portal in like second or third tier schools. How about after spring? I expect another wave of transferred after the spring. So after spring, it could very well be that Auburn's looking around going, Oh, like there's some quality linebackers. Oh, there's some quality interior offensive linemen in the portal. We didn't necessarily think this was going to fall in our lap, but you know, like Lincoln Riley didn't think those players from Tennessee were gonna fall in his lap either. When they did, like he was ready to jump on it. So yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's obviously it's it's a huge, it's a huge traffic maker for us too. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trafficking in clickbait. It just so happens that something I'm really interested in happens to be a huge traffic burner for us. So I won't be slowing down the transfer portal talk anytime soon. Good
3: question there. Um, I think next we're going to go to Ryan Doyle. Ryan, why don't you go ahead and ask uh, Josh a question?
0: Good thing. Hey, Josh. I want to go a little bit off the beaten path. Uh, First, can y'all hear me? Yeah,
1: man, I got you good.
0: Okay. (laughs) So I want to go off the beaten path a little bit, um, a little bit more off of the transfer portal discussion. I know we talked about quite a bit lately, but, um, and I know you've gone to tons of big games um, over the, your career. I know it's young, but tons of big games, national championships, Georgia, uh, Alabama come to mind, you know, your 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 Florida, Alabama at the beginning uh, of the Saban, uh era. But if you could go back and relive uh, one of those games in person, which game would you choose to go back and attend and rewatch?
1: Yeah, yeah well, that's a good one. Um... So th- I think easily the most memorable moment was the, the Alabama two at a Smith second and twenty six deal national championship. Um, that's right. one where he- the funny part about that uh, among many memorable parts was, you know, I was there working. I, I went there just kind of hanging out, watching the game. Like sometimes I'm able to do. So I have like actual duties and you got like post-game responsibilities. You remember it was 13, nothing at the half. Like you think Georgia's, Georgia's about to win a national championship and I'm in Columbus, Georgia at the time. So it's so historic. So your mind, uh, my mind, I'll tell you, to be honest, it already shifted to shaping my post-game coverage and shaping like post-game talking points. So when you get down to the field in the second half, they don't let you on, if you're not a camera person, they do not let you on the field in a playoff or national championship game until five minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Normally I would have been on the field the whole time, but I was there in traditional media capacity. So you get down on the field, about the time things are getting like totally crazy. And so you're down there as they come back and um, Alabama gets that ball, dude. And when they, like, when they get the sack on Tua Vailoa, your mind has shifted. First off, Bama missed a field goal to go into overtime. And then secondly, like you, you've got just craziness happening. Every one of these sequences is something that could be talked about 100 years from now. So you have that happen after the comeback, by the way, and after Tua coming in at halftime. And it's all playing out real time and just too much for your mind to process. So then we're on the field as Georgia gets that sack. On first and 10, it's second and 26. So again, up until that very moment, you're still thinking, you Georgia, like you're getting goosebumps thinking about it. Even if you're not a Georgia fan, you're just, you know, you're witnessing something historic and it's in Atlanta, like it's in the state of Georgia. And so I was in the end zone. In fact, if I had my other phone here, I would pull the video up. I think I've showed it on the show before. All of a sudden, like balls in the air, um, because I was expecting, honestly, on the play, I was expecting a check down or a screen to try and pick up some of the yardage so they can have a manageable third down. And they just, I mean, he lets it go. Obviously you remember the play, but when that happened naturally, like uh, a Smith, you know, he runs all the way across the field. He ran right to me and Irv Smith just trucked one of my good buddies, Stuart McNair. If you'll watch the replay and you see that camera guy get trucked, that's a guy I know very well. That's Stuart McNair. Still let him hear about it often. And so uh, I got right in the dog pile and just started filming. I took the eye, Josh. I started filming right in the dog pile. I got some of the best B roll that you'll ever see. I don't know if we're like technically allowed to use it, but That's memorable, but I'll be honest with you. Very next year, same two teams in that building, um, it was the inverse. It was Tua. Couldn't get it done first half, and they bring Jalen in. And it's, again, Georgia being victimized by the dude they forced on the bench the first time around, comes off the bench, and like knowing that Jalen Hurts could have transferred and didn't, it was a talking point around Alabama in the subculture all year long, and then he comes in the game. And he, he's leading a comeback. Again, Bama's trailing. And again, you got a guy leading a comeback to, um, to have been around Bama and Georgia both a pretty significant amount of time by that point because I'm at the biggest games for the SEC and they're always playing in the big games to know how loved Jalen Hurts was and then to see what was happening in real time and he leads them and comes from behind and wins. I know there was a lot of motion on the field because I went back and watched the replay, but I went up the, uh, the Alabama tunnel um, I never I've never seen Nick Saban like that. To me that's the most memorable. It wasn't even what happened on the field. It's when he kind of, you know, finally knows that he's out of public view a little bit. I've never seen him like that before. The only other time I've seen anything remotely like that's when they got beat by Clemson in Tampa and I was in the locker room afterwards. And again, they know they're out of the public eye by that point. Uh, very surreal to to see, you know, like a collection of folks that broken emotionally, but the total opposite was the case just over, over I guess over flooded with emotion would be the correct term. And he kept it together on the field. But like when Saban came out that tunnel, man, it all poured out. So I remember that. Like if I could go back and relive that one, I could relive it because there's no way, I don't think there's any way to appreciate it in the moment. Even if you're a fan, like it's happening. You got another play 18 seconds later. There's no real way to appreciate that. But there've been some memorable ones, man. That that Tennessee Hail Mary against Georgia, following Butch Jones all the way into the Tennessee locker room when I wasn't supposed to, that was really fun. So man, there have, you, it's fortunate, man. When you get to cover, like when you get to cover ball in the SEC and you get to go to those big games, plus Clemson, plus Florida State, it, it can happen any week. Like there have been stretches where like three weeks in a row, you get instant memorable classics, and then you'll go to like a couple of 55 to 20 blowouts, but it can happen every week down here.
4: Nice.
3: Thanks, Ryan. Uh, next up, we're going to go to Jacob Carnes. He's one to ask about the top five jobs in college football.
5: Hey, Josh. Yeah. What are, in your opinion, the top five jobs in college football? So all things being e- coaches being equal. So every job is available. You're the best head coach available. I'll just say you don't have to go up against Nick Saban because I think that makes Alabama. I think he elevates Alabama above the job that Alabama is. So all that being said, what, what do you think are the top five jobs in college football?
1: Out of curiosity, as I kill time so I can answer this. Where do you think Alabama falls? So Saban's not there. Everything's equal. I'm a coach. All 130 jobs are open, plus G5. Like, where does Alabama fall? Out of curiosity. I
5: have Alabama at seven.
1: Seven? Well, can you name six ahead of them?
5: All right. Georgia, LSU, mm-hmm. USC, Texas, Florida, Ohio State.
1: Okay. Out of curiosity again. what You said Florida State at six?
5: No, uh, uh, Ohio
1: State. Ohio State, okay. Um, Justify USC for me.
5: Proximity to talent, although I know in 2021, everyone's recruiting nationally. Mm -hmm. So, proximity to talent, uh, financial resources available, history, the ability to win a national championship.
1: See my time out? I got like 10 of them, not just three that I can do on the show. So, tell me more about this. Tell me more about the financial resources.
5: So as far as revenue goes, they've ranked in the top ten the past like I found like three years of of data as far as revenue for the program,
1: including TV.
5: That does not include TV.
1: No, it doesn't. See, so, this is Pac-12. where this is where your like my answer twenty years ago sounds different than now. USC is not not in this conversation for me because no Pac twelve team can be right now by the default of how horribly shoehorned into their TV deal they are. So um, to answer your question, I think Georgia is the best. I agree with you. Georgia's best job in the country. I've thought that for a while. I get pushback on that, uh, but I'd be willing to argue it. Um, I don't have a problem with LSU being where you put it. Obama is in the top, that, that top four-ish range for me. Florida's there. Ohio State is certainly there. Um, I struggle with Clemson, to be honest with you. Like, that's, why, that's why I'm trying to figure out, because Clemson, the concept of them being an elite national job is still new to me. It's been less than a decade. And so, like, I, I just wonder, and there's no way to really know, like, I know they match up technically on paper with the qualifiers that I want an elite job to have. But yet, I also really, in a perfect world, would love to have seen multiple guys do it at that stop. That's not the end-all be-all, because some programs like Texas A&M would be way up on my list. And someone could say, oh, no one's ever won a title there at A&M, like in the modern era, no one's done this and that. I just think it's because they haven't, been good at hiring over there. Like I think they've got the right guy now. But I remember when Kevin Sumlin was there, if you talk to coaches behind the scenes, the running joke of college football was how inferior the person in the position of head coach was at A&M relative to the resources of A&M. And it's like everyone, everyone wanted Kevin Sumlin to go eight and four or nine and three. No one wanted him to go five and seven. Everyone in the SEC West wanted Kevin Sumlin to do just good enough because they were scared that if he did bad enough, they'd fire him. They'd get the right guy in there. And then all of a sudden, you'd have to deal with another giant in the SEC West. The other one I struggle with is Texas. But the more I hear about the internals around Texas, the more it negates all this other stuff. Because at, one, at some point, like if I take this water bottle and i start pouring water in the top of it, it is, I mean, it's a 17 ounce water bottle. So I can't fit 19 ounces of water in here. Like at some point, if I start pouring, it just starts overflowing. It's the same way with money in college football. You can only spend so much of it, even if you've got the most lavish facilities, the biggest recruiting budget, the biggest staff of analysts, I know there's a lot of money at Texas. I know they print their money. But at some point, like I think Florida is okay matching up financials with Texas. I think Alabama's okay matching up, but what they don't have, at least at Alabama, and, and you know right now at Alabama, for obvious reasons, what they don't have is just this army of cooks in the kitchen that, by default of how many zeros they've put on those donor checks, demand a say in what goes on. So I used to say Texas was the best job in college football. I wouldn't say that right now. Uh, there are several jobs out there that I would take. So I say all that to tell you, I don't have a top five ready for you right now. I know I just named one than five teams. Georgia would be at the top, though. Uh, there's no combination elsewhere in the country. There's no point on a map, uh, should I say that all those elements come together more than Georgia. So I'll agree with you at the top. Probably need to give me some time to actually formulate my entire top five.
3: That's a good question. Um, we're going to head over to Stuart. He's wanting to ask about Mike Leach and uh, Lane Kevin at Ole Miss. So why don't you go ahead and take it away, Stuart?
6: Hey, Josh, can you hear me?
1: I got you, brother. How you doing?
6: Pretty good, man. How are you? I'm good. So uh, if you had to bet next five years – just purely off the coaches and what you think they'll be able to do, would you take Ole Miss and Mike, or Ole Miss or Mississippi State with Leach and Kiffin?
1: Now, are you are you located there in Mississippi? No, I'm in Columbus. Okay, I got you. All right, so I would say um, comfortably, I would side with Lane Kiffin, with a caveat. How long did you give me? Five years or ten years? Five years. Okay, I have no, I have no. um misguided notions that Lane Kiffin still plans on being there in five years. But if he were to be there, like if both these guys were just firmly committed, they have arrived, these are destination jobs. I like Kiffin's ability to recruit better. I also, in terms of offensive sustainability, I've been of the opinion ever since Mike Leach took that job that there was going to be sort of a cattle prod effect, which you saw in week one, actually, when they played LSU, it didn't take long. For that to be borne out, but then at the same time, you saw what the very next week I think Arkansas went in there and beat him, and so it's like you saw saw both sides of the coin of Mike Leach really early on. I just don't know that his stuff translates here long term. And the thing about Mike Leach is there's not another trick up his sleeve. It's kind of like Malzahn. When the SEC figured out Malzahn, they figured out Malzahn, and then you watched, and the only way Auburn was winning consistently was if it was defense that was kind of doing the job. And so every every off season you'd go into it and you'd say okay, I read some stories. I read some articles. Gus Malzahn, we're going to try some different things. Same stuff every single year. Because that is who they are. It's not like they have multiple pages of their football personality. Mike Leach is the same way. got one page. You see it, that little, that little sheet he carries around. It's got one page of his football personality. And he's in the conference now that has consistently the best defensive back play in America. And so once, once plan A doesn't work, I don't think he has a plan B. I'm not so sure people are ready to stop Lane Kiffin's plan A. So I've got recruiting, edge Ole Miss. I think I've got offensive game planning and execution, edge Ole Miss in this conference. Uh, Resource-wise, there's not one of those programs that's really going to outshine the other. So I would lean Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss.
6: Yeah, I mean, that's the, the whole thing with Lane, though, to me, is is he going to be there? You know, because like Leach, you know, that first year, it's. I mean, I don't think at Washington State it was very good. But then once he kind of got settled, I mean, he was, he was never great, but he'd have like that Minshew year. But with Lane, I mean, obviously, I mean, he ran all over Bama last year. And I mean, there's a lot of things that went his way, but still. But I, would, I mean, I would agree. I mean, obviously, if Lane's focused at Ole Miss, it, it shouldn't be much of a.
1: It's a big if. A I noticed you I noticed you put that if in all caps, which was smart. Yeah, I don't think he's going to be there in five years, just to be perfectly honest with you. I don't think he plans on being there. However, if he was, you know, in that hypothetical, yeah, I'd, I'd have to lean Mr. Kiffin.
6: Yeah, and also as a diehard Georgia fan, I just want to thank you for ripping my heart out like three different times a couple minutes ago. <laughs>
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm here for you. And if anyone else has a request along the same lines, I'd be
3: happy to do it. Good question, Stuart. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to Vance. He's wanting to ask about a recent take you had on Texas a Hey, Josh. Uh, yeah, I think
7: other Aggies would be a little disappointed if I didn't ask this question. Um, I thought you did a refreshingly great job at analyzing both um, Texas a and during the season, uh, 2020 season and afterwards, I think in January, you did a little take on, on the, our trajectory. Um, but to most of us Aggies, it was kind of shocking to hear a media member discuss the Aggies in like a region, regional, logical way. Uh, most of what I feel like we hear, um, I feel like it comes off like some sort of like Aggie bingo card or something where... They just hold the bingo card in front of their face in the national media and they just read it off and it's like B twelve, take a jab at Jimbo's salary, I twenty-three, they play in the West and never beat Bama and let's do like G, I don't know if I'm getting these numbers right, like 54. Right. Uh, Jimbo is his scheme is outdated and they don't have explosive plays. So my my question is, why are you one of the only people like not reading off that that bingo card? Or why are they all saying the exact same stuff when it doesn't really make logical sense and do you think that comes from our famous november crashes uh, like in 2016 uh, so it's almost like a boy cried wolf situation where it's like all right we've seen this before or is it more of like a clemson in the early 2010s when there was clemsoning and all that and they broke through that barrier
1: yeah so amnesia is the first word that i want to talk about another one that starts with a is alabama those are really the two words I want to focus on here. So I'm going to go to gallery view right quick, even though I'm not supposed to. So just out of curiosity, we got a lot of people in here right now. All of you watch college football every Saturday. Um, raise your hand if you don't think Texas A&M is capable of winning a national championship. Some of y'all are lying. There's got to be someone in here that doesn't think. Okay, so we got a couple of them. All right, so uh, I'll get back to that. Who in here thinks that Texas A&M is a... All right, no one thinks they're tier one. How many of you think they're a tier two program? All right, tier three. And are there any tier fours? Okay, so somewhere in like lower tier two, upper tier three, like that would be on average, I think what people think about them. So now I'll go back to the speaker view I'm supposed to be in. So here's my answer. Number one is amnesia. The Clemson example is perfect. So this is what I've circled back around to many times. Clemson right now, I think people's opinion of Clemson pretty well established. It's a national powerhouse program. Uh, a lot of you don't root for them anymore, whereas you used to, kind of that Boston Red Sox syndrome. You know, ESPN told you guys you had to root for them at the beginning of the 2000s, and then a lot of you rooted for them. And then you got tired of having them shoved down your throat, and Clemson's the same way. So Clemson, you were right. It took a long time for people to ever consider them and take them seriously. And you go back and watch and look at, like, if you Wikipedia Dabo Swinney and you Wikipedia Clemson football, I have to do this pretty regularly. Look at how many times. There are, like, three different times. Clemson thought they were there. And Florida State came in there and just railed them one time in Death Valley. I remember it was ugly. And so, like, that was the setback. Then they get to, I think it was the Orange Bowl and get railed by West Virginia. And so, again, you keep getting somewhere, and it's like you poke your head up And college football, like, whack-a-mole's you back down. And then they finally get to a national championship game. They performed admirably in 2015. Uh, They got beat. But then the next year, they win against Alabama. And all of a sudden, it's like everyone got amnesia. And all of a sudden, they played in two title games in a row. Everyone forgot. They don't believe you can do it until you do it. That's the whole point. And so what I try and do, I think the only difference between maybe the way I look at it and the way a lot of people look at it is I'm trying to look around the corner a little bit. Because once it's in your face, it's easy to see. If it's around the corner, it takes a little applied instinct about having watched the game for a long time. But here's what I do. What I do is I say, what is it you need to win in college football that they don't have? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing. The only thing they don't have is the trophy case. That's what people would love you to have. Then it's easy to buy. It's easy to buy into Alabama. You see them win all the time. You haven't seen a and do it. The other word is Alabama. Like If they weren't in the SEC West, if I took Texas A&M as is and I parked them in the Big 12, they would be a preseason college football playoff contender right now. This year, they would be one. If I did the same thing and I put them in the ACC, you know, we'd enter and it would kind of be like they looked at Notre Dame last year. Ooh, now that Notre Dame's in the ACC, it's going to be them and Clemson. Could they both make the playoff? Well, nothing changes about the roster. Nothing changes about the logo, the size of the university, the stadium name. Nothing changes. All that changed was their surroundings. So I try and view the caliber of a program independent of their surroundings. like The the reality is, if I took a bunch of these folks that are preseason playoff contenders and parked them in the same division as Alabama, they'd have a lot of trouble getting off the ground, perceptional. And so, you know, I mean, that's that's the big elephant in the room, no pun intended, but that doesn't make the caliber of program any less, I guess is the way I look at it. And the other thing that I, I keep going back to this, there's a big difference sometimes in media and fan perception versus how people inside the college football industry think and i can echo the sentiment that i always hear coaches assistant coaches have always said it personnel folks have always said it ad's have always been terrified of texas a&m ever getting their act together because they know all the stuff it takes to win they have it's no different than how bryant back in the 70s when he was in alabama used to talk about florida to that point florida had never been a powerhouse but yet everyone knew it was only a matter of time until they got the right coach and they just happened to stumble into figuring it out, and then they'd become a powerhouse. Well, it didn't happen until the 90s, but there was a guy named Steve Spurrier that all of a sudden was the head coach at Florida. And Florida like rewrote the offensive record books. No one could touch them for a little while. And that's the same thing people are scared of happening at Texas A&M. I think it's capable of happening now, it may, just because it hasn't happened yet. like I think it's capable of happening now. So I guess that's my difference. I don't know. I guess everyone else can answer for themselves, but that's why I see him where I see him. Good question, though. Like that's, I'll tell you. Here's the funny thing, though. As we as we wrap that one up and move on, one of the funny things about a And M is it's hard to nail their fan base down. Like there are some programs. You know what the most popular websites are. You know what the most popular shows that they watch are. A And M is. It's kind of hard. It's kind of like I, I use the old nailing Jello to the wall analogy a lot. Finding where a And M fans hang out consistently. It's a massive fan base, and it's like they're out there somewhere. But it's it's kind of hard to figure out so that the fan base is kind of fragmented a little bit in terms of where they all hang out. That's more of like an, an R first world problem kind of deal. But yeah, A&M, like I I root for a lot of these teams to be good because it would be good for the show, selfishly, just to be honest with you.
3: Good question,
8: Vance. Uh, we are actually going to move on to Makoto. Hey, Josh. uh, It's funny that um, you're doing the Red Sox reference because I was I was raised in Massachusetts and I was a Red Sox fan when I was growing up. So it's just kind of funny you mentioned that.
1: But see. Here's the thing. So so you you should be pulling for Boston. But here's what happened
8: in the early 2000s. ESPN,
1: you know where they're located geographically. Therefore, you know, that place is loaded. It's just so incestuous with Red Sox fans. And what they did was they convinced the whole world you're either Yankees or you're Red Sox. And they thought basically it's like someone in Montgomery, Alabama, looking at the Iron Bowl, but then thinking that someone in Seattle, Washington should care every bit as much about the Iron Bowl as someone in Montgomery, Alabama. And so, like, you know, the Yankees are either loved or hated nationally. And so they figured at ESPN, let's just be a fan club for the Red Sox. And let's convince someone in Seattle and L.A. and Miami and Omaha, Nebraska and Columbus, Georgia, hey, um, Red Sox, like if you love underdog, this is your team. And so I took the counter approach. I was, I was raised to despise the New York Yankees. I started pulling for them just out of spite because I couldn't stand the propaganda that was being again, digitally shoved down my throat every night, but it's not like I harbor any ill will, as you can clearly tell. So, so continue carry on there.
8: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so my question is, uh, so I'm a Florida fan. Funny enough, I was raised in Massachusetts, but I'm a Florida fan because my dad was an alumni. So Logical. I was raised that way. So mine's a little, I guess, a little hypothetical, not hypothetical, but um, so what do you think is more likely to happen? So I rate so a little, little thing. So I think I rate in the state of Florida, I rate Florida's number one, Miami, number two, FSU, number three. And what would you think would happen first? Would you, do you think Miami would take overtake Florida as the number one team in Florida or Florida state overtaking Miami as the number two team with all the current, everything that's going on?
1: Um, I think mm, it's a good question. So as you can tell, I look off in the distance, even though no one's here when I'm confused. I think probably the answer is Miami overtaking Florida, only because Florida is not an elite recruiter right now. If Florida were an elite recruiter, the answer I think would be Florida State over Miami. However, so, so Miami is recru- Miami's recruiting classes right now, if we go like freeze this point moving forward, are very comparable to Florida. So roster wise, like there's not going to be a massive gap over the next couple of years there is a massive gap right now between those kinds of teams in Florida state. Like they got a pretty sizable rebuild there. So I don't even know who Mike Norvell is yet as a, as a recruiter. I don't even know who he is yet. We don't even, they haven't settled in there yet. So I think right now the answer would be Miami over Florida. But then at the same time, the problem with that is they don't play in the same conference. And so you don't have a lot of cross comparative data points. Like I've seen Florida play A&M and then Georgia who do I see Miami play? I see them play Virginia and Boston College any given year. Like maybe they're decent products, but I have I have very few tangible data points to look at. Like when they go play Clemson and they get blown out, but then they're impressive against other teams. I have no clue what to make of that any given year. So it's hard until they get in a meaningful game. I, I liked it when they played each other. I was when did they play? They played a neutral site game a couple of years ago to start the season, week zero game. That was mm-hmm. like 114 degrees. I remember going to that at turnover fest, but um, I guess the answer would be like, what do you think? I guess the answer would be Miami.
8: Uh, I've, I mean, like, like you said, Mike, we don't know about Mike Norvell, So I'm going to have a little like, you know, I guess benefit of the doubt. And I was actually going to say Florida state over Miami just because, because I'm also thinking of like potential and also X's and O's like, especially I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm also giving Dan Mullen the benefit of the doubt just because like, I I'm, pre- I'm pulling for him, but like, I think he'll eventually be able to like recruit a lot better in the future. And also I think Mike Nervell will also, be, we also will also be able to recruit a lot better. And you know, and it's also also tough because you're, you're, those three schools are pulling for all the talent in my, in Florida. And also I'm looking at X's and O's and I think Dan Mullen overall out of the three, three coaches is the best game day coach. And I think he, he can out coach. So Miami let me ask you this. So the other night,
1: the other night I said something about Mullen and a lot of folks jumped down my throat. So I said it cause I believe it. I don't take it back. I'm not apologizing for it, but let me know what you thought about it. So I, I just flat out said, I think he handled himself last year like he did not plan on being at Florida in 2021. I believe that there have been some pretty guided suggestions I've been given behind the scenes to think that it wasn't just like off the cuff. Uh, what's your perception on that? Because, man, like a lot of a lot of hashtag your people came at me.
8: I mean, I, I didn't come at you because I. I liked, I mean, I liked some of the things. I didn't like some of the things that he did. You know, I liked the, you know, some of the funny things like the Darth uh, Darth Gator thing, but I didn't like the him instigating the fight in, in Missouri. That was not like some of the things I was okay with, but especially the last thing. Hold up, oh, hold, yeah.
1: hold up. Did they call it Darth Gator? Is that what they called it?
8: Yep. Okay, every Florida fan called it Darth I was, Gator.
1: I was today years old when I found out about that. Okay, go ahead.
8: Yeah, so I didn't like the Missouri thing. And I especially that one thing that really like made me mad was the the comments at the Cotton Bowl, which is like the thing that was like, oh no, this is not good. Like, I like some of the, I like him being like a laxida- like lax coach when it comes to like certain things, like the Darth Gator thing. But you know, it gives a little energy, you know, to the coaching style, I guess. But but hearing like some of the game game day comments and also his own actions, you know, I think Missouri is a one time thing. I think he won't do that again. But I don't want to see a repeat of the Cotton Bowl again. Any other years, we make the SEC championship. Hopefully, I don't know how that's going to go in the future, but yeah, you know, no, I one was is. okay with some things. that was, I'm not okay with other things.
1: Yeah, I was likely forever.
8: All right, up next is Matthew.
3: All right, so I know you hate the term off season, so I'm not going to use it.
1: I don't even but- believe that it should be you. Like, I believe this is if you want to cancel a word, cancel off season, just <laughs> whisper it, be respectful and whisper it. That's what I'm asking.
7: Right. Well, sometime last summer, okay, uh, you had put a story time in one of the shows. And you talked about your buddy Jack Patterson and a run in he had with Marty Smith, the mm-hmm. video that went viral. Uh, and I was curious for you in your career, have you ever had maybe a time where uh, somebody else in the business maybe reached out and gave you some encouragement or some advice that you were able to take and kind of get to where you're at now?
1: I was talking to someone about this last night and I, I don't think it was you. So this is really timely. There are, there are some really high profile people within our industry that are that shaped my opinion of how I should manage my time. I, it's why I always try. If like I have free time, I always try and get back to, obviously, everyone who's reached out via email, everyone who asks for advice, correspondence, can you check out my reel, etc. And the reason is because that happened for me. Tom Lugenbill over at ESPN is exceptional, has always been exceptional with me on this back when no one would have ever heard my name. I had barely even done a day's worth of radio, much less TV, much less digital media, much less elevating here. And yet every time I reached out to Tom, even back in the day, he would not send back, hey, it looks good. You know, where you can tell they clicked on it, but not much else. He'd send back paragraph after paragraph after paragraph and not just complimentary stuff. Like he'd critique stuff. Uh, There were several things that needed polishing big time. About my on-air presentation, because the first day I ever did TV, first day I was ever in a TV studio, I was on TV. I worked at an operation down in Columbus that was um, it 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 was not it was not like Manhattan. It was not Thirty Rock. Okay, we were not we were not um, the biggest operation in town, shall we say. So anyway, I was very unpolished, and the thing about it is, the way that the local news industry is, which I was in at the time, versus the way people think it is, is totally different. What you think when you go in is okay. I'm starting near the bottom. Like I was in market 126 to give you some idea. And you think, okay, here's the trade-off. I'm going to be able to learn a lot and I'm going to be able to be taught. And half that may happen, but you better teach yourself. Like you better learn through observation because those places have been gutted. And there are not people sitting around ready to train you and teach you this and teach you that. So you got to reach out. You got to establish your contacts and you got to reach out. Here's what was funny about it. Uh, there are some people who work for 24/7. Travis Ryer, who works for Bama Online, was really good. JC. Sherbert, who's over with the South Carolina site. Um, Jake Rowe with the Georgia site was really good. Like those guys helped me out early on. Uh, Tom Loganbi, as I said, but there are some other folks whose names, for obvious reasons, will not be mentioned here. There were some folks who would turn their nose up at you, which is OK. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a risk reaching out if no one ever turns you down. But there are some people, um, there are some people who I'm in contact with professionally, by necessity, these days, that once upon a time, you know, and I was reaching out very informally, like on Facebook Messenger. So I could see when they read it. And when they didn't, there were some people who would open up your messages and just kind of move on about their day, far less profile, far smaller stature than some of the people who were answering me. So again, I didn't take that personally. But I did remember the ones who did help out. And I think it's it's, I think it's amazing anytime someone's able to elevate in this industry, no one's doing it without help. And the ones who refuse to help folks on the other end, you know, once they get over the fence a little ways and they're able to like make a full-time living doing what you would be doing as a hobby anyway, like, I don't know why you'd ever turn that opportunity down. You wouldn't be here if someone didn't help you or several people help you. But yeah, man, like Tom Luganbilt really, it still to this day, helps me out. But Even back then, helped me out big time.
3: We're going to go ahead and go to Seth. He has got a question about the college football stock
4: market.
9: Yeah, essentially, I was saying if you could treat each program's
10: future like the stock market, what program would you choose to invest in and what programs would you choose to short?
1: I would I would invest in a lot of the G5 programs to be honest with you. Like I don't and I'm not just talking about Central Florida. I know that's the go-to program right now, but I would look at Houston, I would look at Memphis, Cincinnati's obviously a good one. I think East Carolina is a great value play right now cuz they're bad on the field. A lot of these other programs have been good on the field, but what you're looking at basically is you're asking yourself 10 years down the road, what does the sport look like? And certainly there's been restructuring by that point of some kind. I don't know what it would be. I would probably You know, to be honest with you, I probably short a lot of programs on the West Coast in the Pac 12. I would short a lot of programs only because I'm totally non confident on the future of the television rights packaging. And what I think may end up having to save a lot of those brands is I don't, you could call it a super conference, but super conferencing uh, to make that a term, maybe with like the Big 12. Like I've been a believer for a few years now that some blend of Pac 12, Big 12, Will be a conference in 2030, 2035, let's say. Um, I would also, I would probably take a chance on a program like, let's just say Arkansas, Arizona State. Like, I would take a chance on Arizona State because I think those are some programs. uh, Miami would be a really good one too that could benefit from the transfer portal. Those are just some names that I've had in my mind. I've talked to some people that single out Arkansas and single out Arizona State. I've singled out Miami. Uh, Georgia Tech, I would invest massively in right now. I don't know how many of you wanted, but those are a few of them. And I've also always had just a little voice in the back of my head that says, always keep an eye on Maryland. So whatever I have remaining, like wherever my coins are, I'll put the remaining coins on Maryland. Yeah, I had, uh, I had Arkansas in my, in my brain. Now that you mentioned Georgia Tech. I think that's a, a really good one as well. Yeah, it's, it, it, you know, the, another one that I've always been fascinated with is Louisville. Louisville very, it's kind of anonymous because it's not quite on the East Coast, so it doesn't get the media rub. Uh, but yet it's a power five program. They've had success in the last decade, decade and a half. Like they have produced big time players from that program. So, I mean, we've seen Louisville be good before, but when they're not good, they very quickly disappear from the national radar because it's, nationally, it's a pretty anonymous program. That doesn't mean you can't be good, though. Like I tell when I grew up down in Columbus, I used to have to tell Auburn folks nationally. Auburn's a pretty random program. Like people in Wyoming don't know where Auburn is. They know it's in the SEC, they don't know where it is. It didn't stop them from winning a national title in 2010 though. So, like just because people don't people don't necessarily know everything about you in Reno, Nevada, doesn't mean you're not capable of a lot.
3: All right. Next we've got Albert. Uh he was wanting to ask about de incentivizing opt-outs for bowl games.
1: Oh, this should be good.
11: Hey Josh. I'm I'm looking at this from the perspective of a of a former band member. Uh and our team wasn't very good. I was a band member at Texas State University. Go Bobcats. Uh, we are not a very good po- football program. And we, we were all, always very excited when we win a few games or a, a game. And uh, we, were, we always joke about we're going to go to a bowl game this year. It, it doesn't happen. But uh, talking about disin- disincentivizing uh, opt-outs, when I saw the Florida-Oklahoma game, I was really hyped for a really great matchup. But then Florida was just, it was just not great. And I feel like that might've been to do with opt-outs and I I know it's a COVID year and the bands weren't there, but I would feel kind of let down if I don't get to support the team that I know it can be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was ugly. That face you made was a very, very good recollection of what that game was because it was splattering as we like to say around here. Uh, So I'm a believer that, you cannot put toothpaste back in the tube. A lot of what's happened with opt-outs, a lot of the, the prevailing culture around college football that's led to that being an actual you know, mentality, that, that is what it is at this point. You can't go backwards on that. It's why a lot of people, when they hear me talk about expanding the playoff to go on a different track, but I'll circle back to it. When they hear me so adamant and kind of passionate about being against playoff expansion, it's because I know once those experiments happen, you never go back. Once you expand stuff, you never contract it again. And so we're only getting one shot at it. Like on the other side, I'll have someone say, oh, why don't we just give it a chance? Because if it fails, it's still going to remain. So with this, I think there's a tie in. I have said this before. I'll say it again for those who have not heard it. Early on, when we went to a playoff format, I personally didn't have a problem with it. But there were some people, Nick Saban was one, who was was vocal about, hey, I'm not anti-playoff, but we got to be careful about what we make the focal point of this sport what is the nucleus of the sport and i am a believer in retrospect now i didn't have this kind of instinct at the time but in retrospect the fact that the entity being espn that kind of is the hub for college football was the same entity that purchased the playoff contract that spelled disaster even though we didn't realize it at the time because when you pay that many billions for a product you're going to put your marketing machine behind it and they did and what happened was the focus on the nucleus of the sport, got taken from regular season and it got put on the playoff. Well, then kids listened. Okay. You, you put it on TV all the time. You talk about it constantly. College football players listened and they watched all the focus be put on those four games. Well, yes, two games and then a national championship game. So those four spots at the end of the year. And they listened also when people said less meaningful game. You know, you're going to the Cotton Bowl, but it's not a playoff game. So it's a less meaningful game. They just listened. And then once you told them that those games are of lesser importance long enough, they started to believe it. And then all it took is one or two people opting out, and then the next year you have seven of them, and then the next year it's a tidal wave. You're not going backwards on that, though. So if I could go backwards, I would just never make the focus of the sport the playoff, but I can't go backwards. So moving forward, what would I do? I would kind of take a figurative pair of scissors, and I would just cut bowl games, not, not cancel them. I would cut them to where they're not attached to the regular season. And that means I can operate under different rules. I'm a believer in taking a revenue package for all the big bowl games especially and doing revenue sharing programs with the winning and losing team. Like I'm a big believer that if I were to take that cotton bowl, for example, and there's a big purse associated with it that's to be divvied up amongst the winning team and the losing team, 75% 75% of the winnings go to the winning team. 25% goes to the losing team. Number one, you got to play in the game to get it, or you got to be on the active roster to get it. So I incentivized guys sticking it out through the bowl game. I incentivized winning the bowl game too. And so that is my best guess at what we could do to preserve the sanctity and integrity of bowl season. You could still have guys opt out. But I, you know, if I put a few thousand dollars, you know, if I put five or six grand on the table that you could stand to gain, I don't know how much we could reasonably stand to gain in revenue. But part of the advertising deals on that, I think could also be drawn in. So I'd like to see revenue sharing from bowl games. That's what I'd like to see. I don't think it, don't think it harms the fabric of the sport because we're treating it as different than the regular season. You still get your bowl experience as a fan. And as a viewer, you still get a bowl experience as a player. There's an added carrot on the end of that stick. So now that we're here, let me say it that way. That's my best answer. Good
3: question there. Uh, we're going to head over to John. He wants to talk about the effects of COVID on uh, conferences.
12: Hey, Josh, how are you doing?
1: I am good, John. How are you doing?
12: Doing great. First of all, I do want to say uh, I heard a, somebody use a dirty word that we don't use here around Clemson, which is Clemsoning. That word shouldn't be spoken anymore. Well, uh, It's like a
1: dinosaur fossil. I mean, we can still look at it, can't we? <laughs>
12: Uh, For sure, for sure. I I think that we can allow that. Uh, But I just wanted to talk about when you look at the season of 2020 and how all the conferences were able to do a great job of, you know, well, I guess you could say the Big Ten didn't do that great of a job until they were forced to. But that's a separate conversation. But um, just looking at how they were able to assemble the schedule um, and kind of operate on their own with their own rules and stuff like that. Do you feel with, especially how the NCAA is starting to drag their feet a little bit with players profiting off of name and likeness and getting that into the rule book, do you think that eventually we could see a conference disbandment from the NCAA to make their own entity?
1: Yeah, I do think that. I, it's very layered, obviously. Ultimately, what you need the NCAA for is enforcement. That is really the purpose that the NCAA serves right now. Especially if you're talking about major college football, uh, the main purpose the NCAA serves is being an enforcement arm uh, that has the entire sport under its collective umbrella. I think that ultimately there are there are reasons for NCAA officials. There, there's reason for the NCAA to walk on eggshells a lot more than maybe it seems on the outside. Like I know a lot of times you may see these headlines. You know, there was one yesterday. These headlines about, oh my goodness, there's a Twitter video circulating right now about this entity paying this player this amount of money. You'll largely see that swept under the rug and not much will come of that. And the reason not much will come of that is because, uh, whether it's supposed to be publicized or not, a lot of these conference commissioners have the stones to stand up and say, You're not about to come down here. We'll police ourselves. It's kind of like watching The Sopranos, like, we'll police ourselves actual law enforcement is not coming into this operation because what we're doing here is above law enforcement. That's the way it works in society. In college football, it's less consequential to society, but conferences will say, "Wait, we'll, we'll police ourselves here. A lot of our member institutions will police themselves, but we'll police ourselves based on the way we think it should go, not the way maybe your archaic rule book says it should go, even though we, as the D1 Oversight Committee, largely agreed upon those rules once upon a time. So I know that's a very long-winded answer, but it's complicated. I think, yes, ultimately that could happen. But I also really think that a lot of these conferences enjoy being able to pass the buck. Because right now, for every one person who says, man, I hate the way the ACC handled this, you hear 100 people say, man, I hate the way the NCAA handled this. It's just like in the NFL. You may not know the Denver Broncos owner's name, but you know Roger Goodell. There's a reason Roger Goodell is paid what he's paid. He's paid to take a beating in the NCAA right now. It's this, you don't, when you think of the NCAA, you don't think of a person. You think of that circle and that blue logo. And so no one's really getting hurt when you bash the NCAA. No one's really getting hurt. And it's saving face for a lot of conferences and a lot of conference commissioners. And so I think that aspect they like. What they don't necessarily like are some other aspects. and it's tied in the revenue generation and all this kind of stuff. So I think yes, but I don't think it's as a foregone conclusion maybe as some people lead themselves to believe.
12: Well, the reason I see it is that when I look at how the uh, player likeness started, the conversation started, a lot of the states were what pushed it forward because they made that laws in their states. Um, for a while, it was a conversation, but the NCAA was doing nothing about it because they didn't see a problem with it. Um, but as soon as these states started to say, OK, we're going to make it into the law books, you know, they wanted to jump. But ever since then, since 2020 has happened and we kind of got distracted by COVID and all these headlines, you know, it seems that they're starting to drag their feet a little bit and not want to do it so that's why I asked and I could see it definitely happening down the road because I just think there's a little bit just unsavory rules especially for the players um, with them being able to make money off their own name
1: so dragging their feet I don't know how I don't know how well versed you guys are or well read up on this you guys are I know it seems like the NCAA is dragging their feet who in here like if I were to ask you in 30 seconds to sum this up let me go to gallery view right quick who in here thinks that they could give a 30-second summary of the reason it feels like the NCAA is dragging their feet on this whole NIL issue right now? Jordan, just unmute someone. Whoever wants to go. <laughs> let's go. Uh,
3: let's go, Christopher. Sure, I'd love to. 30 seconds. Um,
9: they're dragging their feet because they have no idea where this starts and stops. Do you get paid after you graduate? If they reshow your game? Who knows? Um... Do you get paid if you don't play in a game? They don't know. There's just too many unknowns.
1: Uh-huh. But, okay, so, so I'll shut up. So anyone else that wants to go, is there something that wasn't touched on there that you think needs to be added to this? Because there's one huge,
13: paying, like
1: 500-pound man. gorilla over in the corner right here that never gets addressed.
13: Well, if we're paying, no, we taxing the players now?
1: That's one. That's not the gorilla, but that's, that's another little baby gorilla, so it's over here. But there's <laughs> still one bigger. There's still one that no one's touching on.
10: Liability, liability. So did you say? Are they an employee? Right. Are they employee of the school? Is that create liability? Does that long term health benefits? Where does it stop? It's
1: okay. An, that's a good one. That's, that's a really. Tough. But but a university could come and say, hey, we can fit the bill for that. We already fit the bill for player insurance anyway. That's not the big gorilla. That's something that uh, we can overcome because that would largely be a university issue instead of an NCAA issue. No one's. No one has poached the gorilla yet. Where's the gorilla at? What about the bagman? The bag men don't exist Alex didn't you haven't you listened to the statements <laughs> bag men aren't real yeah bag, that doesn't happen these are college these are young affable college young men they don't get paid to play this game next
2: up who 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 else I think it uh I think it does kind of two things i think it separates the weak from the tears in terms of uh high performing athletes and i think it also allows athletes to uh kind of dictate their own futures so they're not so um in indebted to certain colleges giving them, uh, you know, scholarships and having to come to these schools because it's the only scholarship they had. So I think it's kind of a wheat and tear situation here.
1: I, first off, I love the metaphor there. Secondly, I love that no one has guessed like all these are right points, but no one has guessed where I'm going with this yet. Are, are you mm-hmm. talking about The NFL. Mm-mm, it's still not.
7: What about, what, what about the, the NFL the, though? What, 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 what do you mean by the NFL? I mean, they've right now they've got a four year, uh, free uh, training ground for who they want to uh, eventually pay millions of dollars for, why would they want to, why would
1: they want to mess that up? Yeah, but I don't think that would mess it up. I mean, if I'm getting paid, you know, $3,500 a semester to play at Oklahoma state, I still want to go to the NFL. I agree
7: with you. I think the real reason is they just are terrible at their job.
1: Ah, yeah, but that's very overarching. That's not a gorilla. That's not like a gorilla to me. Where's the gorilla at? I, I,
6: I also, it's tough to police it.
1: Well, yeah, it'd be impossible to police it. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, okay, that's, we have multiple gorillas in the room now. There's one of them. Okay, that's a new gorilla though. My old one's still over here in the corner. Title nine. There's
9: no ladies in college football. And third gorilla it has entered against the wall.
1: Dad gum! Dudes. <laughs> Probably. He's a little bit bigger even than the one that's over in the corner <laughs> over here. Okay, so that's a huge mess. But let me ask you this to save time because we could probably go into four in the morning here. What happens if you played football in 1982? What happens if you played in 1993? What happens if you played in 2006 and you look around and you say, hold up, you guys just passed this new law. You made money off me in 1983, in 2003, in 2006. What about me? And what, you, ever, you ever heard the word class action, in other words? You ever, you ever heard about those? Yeah, those are really scary because we're not talking about 10 or 15 former employees. We're talking about... Um, 10,000 former employees that get together and say, we want our piece too. That's what the NCAA has been terrified by. That's the legislation they've actually been working on. I know right now, you know, they've, they've kind of got this hand over here and they're snapping and they're telling you to look over here is where the real work is being done. And the real work is through lobbyists. And what those lobbyists have been doing is they've been getting to various uh politicians that are going to end up voting on this and saying, you got to get us immunity on this, or you've got to get basically, you got to shut the garage door on the path. If you want us to change legislation from this point moving forward, fine. Like you got us. We understand we got our back against the wall. There's nowhere we can go here. We don't want it, but we're going to have to take it. But you got to make sure that we don't have to go back because that'll cripple us. That'll bankrupt us. So to go back to the previous question, like that ties into that one too. Is there any way that the power five programs could they end up breaking off from the NCAA? Hey, what if there is no NCAA? Cause that's the question that they're worried about. They're worried about the answer to that. If they were ever really truly on the hook for all of the athletes who have ever been profited off of, that's the gorilla. Now he's out of the room. He's good. That's the big one though. That's not talked about a lot. And the reason why it's not talked about is because they don't want focus on that. Cause if you get focused on that, all of a sudden everyone who's ever, picked up a badminton racket or or thrown a football all of a sudden says, wait a second, I can get money out of this. And every slip and fall lawyer in America is doing commercials on your local TV saying, have you ever played college athletics? Call me. There may be money in this for you. That's not the world they want
14: And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places.
3: Good discussion. Uh, Let's head over to Tariq. He's got a question about uh, West Virginia returning to national prominence.
12: Yes. Uh,
3: Hey, Jordan, thanks, Josh. um, So my first interaction
10: with you is when you kind of um, mentioned West Virginia in the same breath as a G5 program. That and doesn't sound like me. That was you that a year ago. Me. And, it, and it, I actually messaged you on YouTube and you responded and I was shocked. I'm like, all right, I have to like I have to say something because you can't tell the history of college football without West Virginia. That's true. You can't and so 2007 was probably the peak of West Virginia. And I think what got them to that moment was they were in the former Big East. So they're playing the likes of USF and Rutgers and, and, uh, and Syracuse, right? So they're dominating that. They were Oregon before Oregon in terms of offense, spread offense. Rich Rodriguez was ahead of his time. I don't think he wanted to be there as he was looking for the exit to Alabama or where he eventually went to Michigan. And like, do you see them ever getting back there? Because they went through Bill Stewart then Dana Holgerson, and now they're at Neil Brown. I don't know much about Neil Brown, but I think they're on the wrong conference. I, I think they don't have any competitive advantage like they did in, in 2007. Right? They don't, they're not on the cutting edge of offense. They're one of the poorest programs, if not the poorest program in college football. Um, I think they could take advantage of the transfer portal to get some kind of competitive advantage. In my view, I think they need to, whenever this conference realignment happens, they need to move back to the ACC and they need to be playing against teams like Virginia Tech, which is a whole nother monster. Maryland is a whole nother monster, which I think those three programs being down at the same time is reflective of where we're at in terms of conferences and all that. So I just want to hear your opinion on Your thoughts on Neil Brown, West Virginia, can they get back to where they were?
1: It's a really good way to put it, like the Oregon of the East Coast. That's what they were. Um, I remember, I don't think it was 07. I think it was the year after Auburn went up there and played a Thursday night game. And they really started the ball going downhill quickly on Tommy Tuberville. It ended at the end of the year and he got fired. But I remember vividly, I caused the Auburn call-in show. Um, An army full of Alabama fans prank called the Auburn call-in show. After that, it became like, sort of an underground legendary story where I was from because those, those calling hosts, they were already on tilt and that sent them over the edge. And there were some regrettable things said on live radio that night in Auburn, Alabama. So uh, I remember that. Yes. So that's what they were like once upon a time. I think that was the, uh, the Slayton, Pat White. Like that's when all those guys were coming through there. Uh, Part of the reason people down where I was from were mad because they looked at the player profile and said, Pat White's from Alabama. How come we didn't keep him down here? And so like what Rich Rodriguez had done is he had made West Virginia special preparation. It's just like Chip Kelly did at Oregon a little while later. They were special preparation. When you played West Virginia at the time, it was was someone doing something different than anyone else on your schedule was doing. Well, the problem therein lies because as you mentioned, they are disadvantaged in terms of resource. But as long as you're a special preparation, you can put lipstick on a lot of figurative pigs about your program if you're doing something different. But then when the sport adjusts, and like 15 other programs start doing what you're doing, well, then you got to have a curveball. You can't just live off your fastball anymore. And they didn't have a secondary pitch. And so I totally agree with you with the big 12. That's the most, it, it's the most, um, it, I don't know what the, it, it makes no sense. Like if you were an alien and you landed on planet earth today and you said, you, you're telling me that there's a program that could basically see the Atlantic ocean from their balcony and yet they have to fly a minimum of a thousand miles to go to their nearest road game. And they got to do that like six times a year or whatever. That makes no sense. Well, yeah, that's West Virginia being in the big 12. So I think that matters too, because you're everybody else in the big 12 recruits, Texas. There is no, it's like a, it's like, you probably have to connect three flights to go from Morgantown to Austin, Texas or Dallas. And so that's not a good fit, man, at all. I don't know what the answer there is though. Every, every step, that, you know, West Virginia has taken is to try and get to the next level financially. So Mm -hmm. I understand from that viewpoint, but are you, um, are you cutting off the nose to spider face? That's the big question. And it's not, um, it's, it's, it's very intentional that I said it that way. It's called a malapropism, but I think that's what they did. Cause now West Virginia, they are, when's the last time we talked about them on the national level? Right. Right.
10: And I, I mean, that's the, the program Bobby Bowden started yeah. it is a blue blood program. It, it if Rodriguez wanted to stay at West Virginia, I think they could have been what Clemson is now. I believe that. I mean, they're not in the fertile recruiting ground of you know South Carolina, but you know, with with the right coach, and if they, I mean, they were one. They, they lost to Pittsburgh, thirteen to nine. They win that game. They're going to the national championship.
1: Uh, let's let's slow down here because what you just said, like ten minutes left, before we have to restart again. So so let's walk through this slowly. I don't know. Let me go to gallery view, which I'm not supposed to do. Um, Like, how many of you vividly remember the 07 college football season? Okay. Does does anyone understand how close we were to watching, like, West Virginia versus Kansas for a national championship? Not in basketball. I'm talking about in football. Uh, South Florida. Was that the year South Florida was in there? Like, we came this close. And then instead, if you look back in the history books, history makes 07 look like a normal year because we ended up with LSU, Ohio State. Dude, we were this close to, for a lot of people around the country, the most unwatchable national championship matchup ever, but yet it would have totally knocked the sport on its ear. That sounds like it happened in 1957. That is less than a decade and a half ago that we almost had West Virginia and Kansas playing in a national championship. So yeah, if you don't remember that season, I would uh, I would highly advise you, if you just want to be entertained thoroughly for like an afternoon, for four or five hours, just go back and like relive uh, through written word, the 07 season, because that was one of the it was one of the craziest times. If you go back and look at the AP polls, just pull up like week eleven of two thousand seven. South Florida's up there, Kansas is up there, West Virginia's up there. I mean, that's a year where like that's Saban's first year at Alabama. They were nowhere to be found, and so it was so weird looking when you pulled up the top ten. It looked like if if you played if you're playing like the NCAA video game, and you and a bunch of buddies had just taken over bad programs, but because you're good at the game, you can make those programs good. That's how the actual top ten looked in 2007 for a little while. It just kind of jogged my memory, but yeah, man, yeah. I, about Neil Brown though, like he came from where I'm from. He came from down in Troy. Like a lot of people swear by him, but also the concern is a lot of people think he wants to get back home. A lot of people think he wants to get back down south. I think he probably wanted the Auburn job. I can't confirm that, but I think he probably behind the scenes angled for that Auburn job. So you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I wish I could give you a more like cheerful. Um, optimistic answer, the yeah. best I can do is I can smile and say, I don't know right now. <laughs> well, thanks, Josh. I appreciate it. Let's go to Andrew. He had a question
3: about uh, media motivations in fixing college football.
13: How's it going, Josh? So my question is about, you know, you hear the media talk, talk about we need to fix college football, i.e. expansion, or hey, NIL is going to Make certain programs rise, rise at level the tier system or whatever. I think a lot of this is based on they hate the SEC or southern programs. I include Clemson in that. They cannot stand that southern programs dominate college football. And if you look at who these people are saying, it's not calling any names, but they're people who are mostly from up north, and they don't. They I mean they're college football guys, but they don't really. They don't really love college football like we do down here. Do you do really think people hating the SEC, do you think it's an actual thing? Because I do. I really believe. I'm a Georgia fan, by the way. Lee yeah, Redman, like, yeah. yeah you know? I do. I do think there are a lot of people who hate the
1: SEC. I think there are a lot of people who hate um, the fact that a region is more dominant and the sport is naturally tilted towards that region. And when I say naturally, notice, I mean, the natural con- or the natural fabric of the sport, rather, the natural layout of it. Not anyone disproportionately tilting it like a lot is accused of happening. I just think it's a recruiting game, man. So like, if you're if you're existing in an area where disproportionately the biggest recruiting hotbeds are, you tend to fare pretty well. It's why it's so inexcusable for programs to have extended periods of suckage. You know, like it's how how in the world do you screw that up? And how much would programs from other regions of the country give to exist in Austin, Texas, or Knoxville, Tennessee? That's a little side note. But yes, the answer to part one is yes. There are there are a lot of people who are rubbed the wrong way by that. Now, part two is how do they choose to cover it? Because you're talking about folks in the media. Uh, some of them take it upon themselves to, you know, wield their their shield in front of themselves and we're gonna fix the sport, man. We're gonna, we're gonna save the sport from itself. And the ideas are almost always horrible. But the second part of that is what if the answer is right in front of your face what if the answer is just hiring better it's why i am i am such a big proponent of what iowa state is doing like i'll talk about him until i'm blue in the face because you're not going to sit around and you're not going to talk to me about how the sport is set up to make you fail at the expense of you know some southern team succeeding when i got a team up here that doesn't rank in the top 30 in facilities they never rank in the top 40 in recruiting and yet they just won the fiesta bowl last year like they're in playoff contention multiple years the answer is not out the window like in a lot of these cases the answer is in the mirror but no one wants to look in the mirror and so a lot of people package up and 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 to to be clear the reason why a lot of folks in our line of work say what they say is because their sourcing is telling them these things so if my source if if my network of sources are a bunch of athletic directors guess what the ADs are telling me let me tell you what they're not telling me they're not telling me Man, we're terrible. Blast us. What they're telling me is this sport is built against us. We are up against it. We have little to no shot. That's what they're telling you. So, only it's only natural to hear that regurgitated. A lot of places where you go for your college football consumption, I get told the same stuff by those folks. The difference is I try and filter it a little bit and I try and, you know, maybe look around and say, uh, you know what? Maybe if your budget is that size. And maybe if your facilities are that nice, and maybe if geographically on a map, you're parked close to that many recruits, maybe it's not the sport that's holding you back. Maybe it's you that's holding you back. So yeah. And then there's a third group that really is in college football for reasons other than just loving covering college football. And that's a whole nother can of worms that no matter how I phrase it, when I open it, I'll be accused of going after journalists, uh, which I was accused of last time. And mm-hmm. so it's not I that think, at all. There's a lot of a lot of really really good college football journalists in our industry. I think uh, there are also some who use that capital J to justify some very lackluster work that's done under false pretenses.
13: Let me put it that way. My thing always is is if these people say, "Oh, we should have expansion." It's like surely you realize that expansion almost definitely means a second SEC team is guaranteed to get in in a normal year. As in, who's ever second in the SEC West will at the very least uh, have maybe have two have two losses, one of which will be to a top three ranked, more than likely top three ranked Alabama team, Florida or Georgia in the East. One will have maybe one loss to a top ranked. Florida or Georgia team. It's, it's insane to me. So you do re- like, I would absolutely love the idea. Well, you, you mentioned um, on a few pods a while ago about the, um, your, your dream SEC, your dream playoff scenario. I would absolutely love Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, and maybe like Florida state, all Southern teams. That would, <laughs> Their brains would just explode. I would absolutely love that. Absolutely love it.
1: Yeah. I did that under the context of if I were a TV executive, and then a lot of people took it to mean, they didn't hear me say, TV executive. They just heard me say my name and hear the teams that I would love to be in. And so, yeah, um, all of a sudden I became a homer of those four teams and a hater of everyone else. But yeah, it's I, I, I would love for there to be perfect balance and perfect synergy in this sport. I'm not stupid. I see our numbers. I know that we make more money when more of the country is relevant. I get all that. But you can't manufacture it. Like at some point, it's up to them to make the proper decisions and proper hires in order to be nationally relevant. No one He's about to look, me, look at me and tell me Southern Cal has been down for an extended period uh, because yeah, the sport just doesn't let them succeed. I don't believe that.
13: Hey, Josh, can you hear me?
1: I got you, man. Nice polo.
9: Oh, appreciate it. Hey, so I was, so I was thinking you should make your own uh, NFT card set with all the uh, iJosh footage that you have from the, uh, the sidelines of
5: some of these games.
1: Hey, I was thinking about this now. I, now, granted, I have people that are coaching me in this. I, not to spoil the ending, I think there's some potential tied to our show when it comes to NFT. So let me leave that there. You can continue, but, but I have thought about it. Let me put it that way.
9: Okay. I'll I'll be first in line for that whenever it comes out. Um, So I, as an Aggie, I like seeing Sooners and Longhorns kind of stuck in the big 12 right now, but I know that's going to come to an end soon. Um, So I'm wondering if conference realignment was tomorrow. Where do you think those two schools would try to position themselves? Where would they go? Which conference would they try to join, or would they try to form a mega conference? I don't. I know certain schools in the SEC would try to vote them out or cancel their bid to get in. Um, but if they had their
1: um, their way, where do you think those two schools would go? I think the SEC would welcome either one of them. I don't think they'd want in the SEC. Um, they they're you know different programs want different things. Like some programs really care about the academic profile of a conference. Texas would be one of those, for example. I, that's why in the last round of expansion talks, there was no Texas SEC, it was Texas Pac 12. There is another bidder that would enter the room in very strong fashion, and that would be the Big 10. The Big 10 would try and get both of them. And so if I could get, if I were Oklahoma and Texas and I could get myself into the Big 10, I'm done. Like snap of a finger, I'm done. I'm there. If that's not a possibility, I think the Pac 12 would be the next place they go. And then the third possibility that's probably a more likelihood is that super conference idea of a blend of Pac-12, Big 12. I know there are some programs left out to dry there. Like We just talked about West Virginia. What happens to West Virginia? I don't know that they make the cut in that 14 or 16 team conference. Maybe it's for the best. Maybe they end up in the whatever the ACC becomes. But yeah, if the Big 10 was a possibility, I, man, the TV money would be so massive. I think both of them may be on the first thing smoking to the Big Ten if they could.
3: Yeah, I can see that.
1: All right, let's go ahead and head over to Eric.
3: He had a question about uh, Florida, Florida State, and Miami all returning to real big national relevancy.
4: What's going on, Josh? I hey, man. I just to ask, what do you think it's possible? With? Did you ever see Miami, Florida, and Florida State ever at the same time, together at the same time? I wouldn't say in the national title picture but all in the top 10, top 15, all recruiting top 10 classes. And it doesn't, I guess, have to be all in-state prospects because they're all recruiting, I guess, against them and against Alabama. But I guess, how do you see that happening, if it would?
1: Yeah, so theoretically, yeah, Uh, they could all be in that top 15, top 10 range. Now, if we're all talking about, obviously, top six, top five, that's a little bit different. tell you one thing that helps is they're not all in the same conference. Two of them are. If all three of them were, then there's just not enough room at the table for everyone. But yeah, like if Florida were taking care of business, as they kind of are already, uh, there's another step up the ladder they could take. But you know, Florida is obviously the closest to the stature we're talking about right now. I think Miami's the next closest Florida State behind that. If you got head coach figured out, then you have the structure figured out. If you have the structure figured out, the right recruiting plans in place, the talent's all over the place. You can't walk out of your building and not stumble into four- and five-star talent And here's the thing about that. Those guys are looking for a reason to stay home. Like these guys, Dallas Turner did not grow up looking for a reason to leave the state of Florida. Agie A. A. Hall, Christian Leary, these guys don't want to leave the state. They have to because the best option for them is not inside the borders of their state. If you were to get things figured out, you got these guys who are looking for a reason to stay home, finally staying home. Certainly they could all be there. It's happened before. Like This is not ancient history. I mean, we go back to the 90s. We go back to portions of the early 2000s. All these programs were good. They were all legit. Certainly, certainly the sport has shown us that Miami and Florida State can exist and, and coexist as elite brands in the sport. And at that point, you know what Florida does in another conference would be independent of what those two are doing. It's not like in a smaller state where you're saying, oh, if one of them's good, the other ones can't be good because there's not enough talent to go around. All these, they could take their pick. Of the talent in Florida, and that would be what 75 players, and I could still go in there and build a top 10 class with all of the leftovers because that's how much talent there is in Florida every year. So, yeah, I could absolutely see that. Whether the guys currently at the helm are the right ones, that's the one where it's still kind of undecided.
4: And if I can ask another one, if possible, it yeah, go for about it. the coaches, um, out of the three coaches in state, which one do you see getting? I would because you say Dan Mullen is possibly going to leave, but if there would be if one coach would have to get fired, which one do you think would be first? I think it would be Norvell.
1: Right now, it would be Dan Mullen, as crazy as that sounds. And because the reason is because I can't say Norvell; he's too early into his tenure. Man he almost got fired kind of as well, but you know, man, he's he's doing okay down there. There, unless we're talking about off the field scandal, the reason I say that with Mullen is because I think Dan Mullen would be the closest to having something go off the rails between himself and the administration there. That's probably not evident on the surface, but you kind of hear whispers about sometimes behind the scenes. I'm not saying I'm seeing that coming, but in that hypothetical, it wouldn't shock me if the answer ended up being Dan Mullen. Crazy as that sounds, because they're the best program right now out of those three.
3: Thanks, Eric. Uh, We are going to go to Traven. Um, He has a question about uh, Power 5 teams and their value. Hey, Josh, how are you doing? I'm good,
1: man. How are you doing?
15: Pretty good. Uh, Before I get to the football question, I've I've been wanting to ask for a long time. What is your favorite opening scene or episode of The Office?
1: Uh, Favorite opening scene and episode is Stress Relief Part 1. They played it after the Super Bowl, I want to say in 2008. If I sound well-versed on this, it's because I listened to a podcast about it last night. That would be the extended fake fire drill that uh, Dwight plans it involves a cat being thrown through a ceiling tile. Not a huge cat guy. Uh, a printer thrown out a window. It's just chaos. basically it's extended chaos on network TV for like four or five minutes. Someone has a heart attack and gets a wallet shoved in his mouth until he doesn't <laughs> swallow his own tongue. It was a really good time. And so um, that's my favorite episode and favorite open. Today smoking is going to save lives. Yeah. today smoking is going to save lives. Beautifully exactly. done. Also, they had the fake CPR dummy in that uh, episode. Yes.
15: Um, So my question was about uh, last night you talked about power five teams and um, it kind of got me thinking about where does the value come from for power five teams other than just obviously history of being more well-known teams. The reference you used was uh, if Cincinnati would have went and played Arkansas last year, it would have been viewed as a big win for Cincinnati, even though um, I think we, you know, it would kind of been expected because Cincinnati seem to be a better team, or like if Cincinnati would have played Tennessee last year, I would have expected them to beat Tennessee, even though I'm a Tennessee fan. But if Georgia beats Tennessee, it's not as big of a value for a bigger Power 5 team. Where does that come from, and how does it get fixed to where it's just, regardless of what conference you are, if you're a better team, you're expected to win?
1: Uh, It doesn't get fixed, because strength of scheduling is never even. This doesn't happen in the NFL, because scheduling is, is pretty proportionate year to year. Uh, the strongest and weakest schedule in the NFL, I mean, there, there's there's this big a gap between those two. Whereas in college football, we routinely see Power 5 programs playing G5 programs and favored by 45 points. That's not, not even remotely comparable, the conversation. And so my my problem with that, for example, the, the example I made last night, a Central Florida fan, I think that's the example I used. If, if UCF went and played Arkansas, there'd be a much bigger deal made about that win than if Texas A&M went and played Arkansas. The reason is because A&M plays them every year, but Central Florida, here's the pushback I would get. And you'd be right about this. If you were a UCF fan, you'd say, okay, so you tell us to schedule up. Well, we scheduled the team we could schedule, and we went and beat them, and now you're mocking us for doing that. It's not mocking. That's not what I was doing. What I was saying is that is a perfect example. That is indicative of how terminally flawed pretending that these two entities exist in the same bubble is. To pretend that Central Florida is playing the same sport right now as Texas A&M is ludicrous because of the disproportionate strength of schedules. It's why I love watching G5 football. I believe it should have its own postseason. That, takes, that just takes care of all this for me. But yet you get pushed back because you know, we want our shot and there's more money over here at this table. Well, there's more money because it's a more established table, which bleeds back to the first part of your question. Where does the value come from? It comes from brand and brand's not built overnight. It's no different than what we're trying to do with this show. It's not, I don't ever take late kick and say, why don't we get the attention sports center does? I think the answer there's pretty obvious brand matters. And to build a brand, just like to build the the stature of a football program, Ohio state's been playing football for a hundred years, Michigan, Alabama, some of these places have been playing football for a hundred years. They are getting return on that investment through the brand that has been built there. You got to still manage it properly. Obviously. But you you can't walk in the door of a country club that's existed forever and they finally let you in. you sit down at the table, but then you start complaining that you don't have as much on your plate as as this guy over here does. He's been here longer, man. Like That's just the way it's going to work for a little while. But I say, allow yourself to have a full plate. You just got to go to a different room in order to get it. And if you want to be in the big boy room, you're going to have to wait your turn. Florida State, we were talking about Bowden a second ago. Well, when he ended up going to Florida State... If people know their history here, Florida State was a gnat on the college football windshield for a long time. Total afterthought. No one, even, no one even knew there was a team in Tallahassee. Half the country was unaware. And Bobby Bowden went there and he scheduled, win, well, he scheduled checks is what he did. And they went and they got beat into a coma by every major program in the country. And they kept cashing the checks and cashing the checks. And eventually, Florida State got a little profile. And they took all the money they were getting and they reinvested it into the program. And then eventually, not only did they matter, they were a powerhouse. But Bobby Bowden didn't walk in and say, we belong. But they, they did what you have to do in the sport of college football. No one wants that anymore because no one is of an oven mentality anymore. It's a microwave mentality. And so if you don't, if you don't get accepted within 15 minutes, something about the sport is wrong. Something's broken and then needs to be fixed like we were just talking about. It doesn't need to be fixed at all. It's anything worth having, may, well, some of it may take a little while. And so that's the only thing happening you know, right now that a lot of people get bent out of shape about. Good question there.
3: Nicholas has got a question about Big 12 parity and how the Big 12 stacks up against other Power 5 conferences. Hey,
9: Josh. Thanks for having us, man.
3: Yeah, man. So
9: Big 12 gets a lot of commentary, um, that it's a lopsided conference, that it's an easy conference to play in. But, you know, your Cyclones beat out a great team to get to the conference championship last year. Before that, Baylor was there. Um, No one likes playing TCU. By nobody, I mean Texas. Um, And uh, Tariq's Mountaineers field a good football team consistently. So uh, do you think there's parity in the Big 12? Do you think it's uh, increasing parity? Or do you think Oklahoma and Texas are sort of pulling away uh, from from the field? Um, And then if there is parity, um, does the big 12 get enough credit? Um, you know, when it gets stacked up against the other conferences, you often see it, you know, in fourth position, um, just above the Pac 12. So I guess I would ask you where you'd rank it compared to other power fives. Um, and if below big 10, uh, ACC and
1: God forbid Pac 12, why? I wouldn't put it below the Pac 12 cause there is a national championship contender, uh, consistently in the big 12. Uh, but I would have it there at four. It's not because of Oklahoma. It's because of the inconsistency and overall, I think the leveling off of the quality of play below Oklahoma. If it were Oklahoma being a consistent top five team and then there's a consistent top 10 team and then there are three consistent top 15 teams, that's depth in a conference. In any given year, that's what you may have in a conference like the SEC. In the Big 12, what it seems to me like is you got Oklahoma, And then any given year, Iowa State's nice. It's a nice story right now. And we take pride in that, by the way. But any given year, you could go from the top to really having to go down the scale a little ways before we find the next cluster of teams. TCU and Baylor and whatnot, they could be hanging out in the 30 to 35 range. And that's not all that much different than you get in a place like the Pac-12. But the difference is you got meat on the bone at the top in Oklahoma. And right now, Iowa State, that sort of carry the water to where you're looked at superior to the Pac-12. But by and large, I'd put them in the fourth spot right now. I don't think there's a lot of parity in that conference at all. I mean, Texas should interject more. Texas hasn't been able to interject more. Um, TCU, you know, there are a bunch of programs that have shown abilities to flash. Iowa State's flashing right now. Iowa State should not be able to sustain. They're at such a disadvantage. There's no way they should be able to sustain. Obviously, I can hope against hope that it happens. But TCU... It has done it in the past, like you hope for rejuvenation, but then the fear is maybe things have kind of passed Gary Patterson by a little bit. Like you got new coaching staffs in at places like Baylor. No, I don't think there's a lot of parity out there right now. I think the fact that Oklahoma state is consistently in the conversation there is not due to the fact that the caliber of that program is so elite or bordering on elite. I think it's a lack of other contenders that by default puts Oklahoma state in the conversation that, probably they don't really belong in. If I could just throw this last thing out there. Um, do you square that with um,
9: the big 12 performance in bowl games this year um, with the sort of being a, a fluke? And do you think uh, do you think a conference where I, I grant you, there's not like sort of a single like third place powerhouse, but it does seem like kind of a flashy conference where any given year, you know, we've got, you know, Oklahoma state at 15, do at 15 Baylor at 15, what have you?
1: I don't, I've never really put stock in bowl records, uh, to be honest with you. And it's because I, aside from the disproportionate motivation levels, that's another variable that gets inserted into bowl season. Bowl season's not handled the right way that you would need it to be handled in order to judge conference strength because it's not evenly seeded. If I were to have the Big 12 play, if I were to have the number three team in the Big 12 play the number three team in the ACC, that'd tell me a little something. But right now, I watch the number two team here play the number seven team there the two beats the seven by four points. And I hear that number two's conference is superior to number seven's conference. That doesn't tell me anything. It never has. I think it's one of the most low hanging fruit, tired talking points. Not, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking in general that a lot of people use mainly because they have 550 words due at the end of the day. And they just, they don't have any better ideas. So they just talk about conference supremacy through bowl games. You could go, you could go over as a conference and be a quality conference. You can go undefeated in bowl season and be a very lackluster conference. It's just it's kind of a, a random sampling, to be honest with you. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Um,
3: we've got
1: Caden up next. He wants to talk about a new model
3: for playoff expansion.
16: Hey, Josh. Um, nice to just listen to a fellow um, Fortsoner every now and then. Oh, Fortsoner. So, or, oh, you're yes. Fortsonian? Are you Fortsonian? Yes. Fortsonian, Fortsoner, whatever we're going to call it now. Mm-hmm. I'm from that tiny little town north of Columbus. So, um Yeah. But um, what I want to talk about, it's a bit of listening to both you talk about playoff expansion and you're against it, listening to RJ Young go on about how he wants 24 in and, and trying to appease both sides, which is never going to work, but it's okay. And the whole thing with bowl opt outs at the moment, instead of just giving the play, signing the playoff, and right after conference championship Sunday. There, we've seen years where there could be anywhere with eight teams that can make it. Why don't we just assign bowl games before, play the bowl games, and so you have one more variable or one more data point, um, especially for teams like Notre Dame and I believe 2017 that everyone knows they're not very good, but they're undefeated. Let's let them play someone that we think is pretty good but has a one loss because they have a tougher schedule, and just let's settle it on paper or not on paper, on the field, because that's the problem right now. And I think that it could help some of these group of five teams that think that they deserve to be in, which that's a whole other argument. If you put them up against an undefeated Clemson in the Fiesta and all of a sudden they pull off a win, I mean, everyone's still playing. That's You're not going to have many opt-outs if it's before the playoff.
1: If there were ever expansion... Uh, my two caveats would be number one, no auto bids for any conference champion. Yeah. Uh, that's a non-starter for me, or the G five. And number two, I would love for this idea to be implemented for us to tie in bowl season into the actual regular. It's it's like the caboose on the end of the regular season, and then the playoff is its separate train entirely. Um, I think it does serve a purpose. The only hangup I'd have is in the structure, is in the finer points. I mean, for instance. How are the matchups happening? Like that 2017 season, I think that's the year, 2018. Let me, let me go the next year. So, yeah. 2018, yeah, that's when, so Notre Dame makes the playoff that year. Uh, Alabama, I think, was the one seed. O- Oklahoma was the four seed, okay? So, it was right. Bama-Clemson, and then it was Notre Dame-Oklahoma. No one, everyone wanted to play Notre Dame. No one wanted to play Oklahoma over Notre yeah. Dame, but yet because of the seeding, Alabama, as the one seed, got the tougher draw than Clemson as the two seed. And so how, how does your bowl structure work there? Like, do you still keep the tie-ins? Does the Rose Bowl necessitate that you have to have a Pac-12 versus Big Ten? Does that give Ohio State an unfair bowl matchup as opposed to maybe what, uh, I don't know, a team from the ACC has to deal with? All that stuff's got to be ironed out. It's just really hard to have absolute fairness in a sport that is so uneven and unequal and so nuanced. And it's, it's not a flat landscape. It's like looking over a mountain range.
16: I was just going to say, like, instead of on Selection Sunday, instead of selecting the four teams, just do the New Year's Six Bowls or however many bowls you want with the matchups that you particularly want to see. So, like, maybe this year would have been Notre Dame versus A&M or Cincinnati versus, I don't know, Clemson or Coastal Carolina versus Bama. Give us something a little bit different. Give the little schools, if they want to have a shot, to knock off the King, then they have it, but it doesn't um, come at the cost of maybe Alabama falling out or something like
1: that. My problem there is, uh, I don't know how to state this other than the way I feel. I don't care if the little team wants a shot at the I care if they deserve it. That's what I care about. And so like anytime someone says in their hypotheticals, we would have had, for example, coastal Carolina against Alabama. It makes me want to throw up all over my computer. There is no world in which I am attracted to watching that. And there's also no world in which I'm attracted to the idea of that needing to happen on a field as part of any playoff that's worth its salt. That's no knock on Coastal Carolina. It's only a knock if you're suggesting they belong in the same room as Alabama. Like, that's the only knock there is. So, yeah, but, but broad strokes, if I were to have to. If I were to have to give up something in order to get something, yeah, I'd, I'd like that general concept as long as you let me write the rules for it. I don't think that's asking yeah. too much. Thank you. Good question,
3: kid. Um, Next, we're going to go to Casey. He's got a question about Dan Mullen. Why don't you go ahead, Casey?
0: Awesome. Um, hey, Josh, it's uh, really cool to get to uh, just be talking to you right now. Um, So thanks for doing
1: this Casey, Um, Dan Mullen watches the show, man. So you need to be careful.
0: I'll be careful. Um, I get, this is I'm a Florida fan, obviously. um, Very frustrated Florida fan. Um, And I guess I feel like the ceiling is either really high or really low for Dan Mullen. And I feel like he has the potential to be a really great coach. But after last season, and you just go through the things that you go through with him on top of just really lackluster recruiting, I feel like we're kind of like stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I can't like, I can't sit here and justify, like I can't justify keeping him or firing him either like solidly. And so I guess my question is if you're in Scott Strickland's shoes how do you go about thinking about the next few years with Dan Mullen? What do you what do you like what is your mindset going into the next
3: couple of years?
1: Yeah. So this is a good way to put it. This is interesting too. So you've got a you got a conundrum here that if you're unhappy with your guy behind the scenes and and there's been some back and forth if you can read between the lines the the, the sniping they've been doing especially Dan Mullen in the media about his contract. He's not happy. They haven't already extended him. And, like, you know, in my world, like, I know my contract's up in January of 2022, and either CBS will come to me and extend me or I'll be off to somewhere else. But in Dan Mullen's world, once you get inside three years and you haven't renewed, it's a weird deal. It's very unusual. That's why Harbaugh getting taken right to the wire of his contract, that was so unusual. Whereas it may seem, most of you don't even work on a contract. And if you do work on a contract, your mind would say, okay, well, let's get to the end of the first one, then we'll do the second one. So, yeah. There's a lot of uneasiness there behind the scenes. And so if I were Scott Strickland, it depends on how I feel personally. If I do not like this guy, but I got to deal with it because he's winning right now, I just got to let it play itself out. Because ultimately, you know, I I think what you said is correct. I don't think Florida is going to float. I think they're either going to spike or end up falling off a cliff. I don't don't think they're going to float at nine or 10 wins. So you'll be able to take action eventually if you want to. Um, The other thing that I would look at is, I would look at putting the expectation off the field, the standards that you want to hold your program to, making that abundantly clear. And, you know, if you don't meet those standards, you don't meet those standards. But there are a lot of folks down there that, you know this, that have been rubbed a very wrong way when they invest in that program. And then, yeah, we may have won a game here and there, but man, we still didn't really do anything that we think we need to be doing in Florida. And we got to deal with this dude acting like a clown every now and then. That's not what I signed up for. If I'm one of those big bull bullgator boosters, that's not what I signed up for. Yeah,
0: exactly. And it's just like, to me, the most frustrating part is the recruiting. Like how do you be a head coach at the university of Florida and not take recruiting more seriously and not know that that's a vital piece to the puzzle. And it's just, like to know that he, that he and the staff kind of had this lackadaisical attitude about recruiting, to me, that's just a huge red flag.
1: To, to answer your question, I don't know because that doesn't come natural to me. I, like I'd want to be an all-world recruiter, but I can say this. Dan Mullen's not young. He's not new. He is who he is. And so for better or for worse, that's what we got. If I'm a Florida fan, that's what we got. And so we're either going to own the transfer portal to supplement what we don't do in recruiting. They're not bad. They're just not elite. We're either going to do that or eventually that's why I said, they're not going to float. They're not going to hover at nine or 10 wins because they don't have an elite roster every year. They have a really good roster Well, you play enough elite ones to where there may be a five loss season somewhere on the horizon for all we know. And at that point you can take the action you want to take. Right. Well, thank you so much, Josh. I appreciate it. Absolutely, man. I appreciate it. All right. We'll head
3: over to Charles. Uh, Charles, what was your question for Josh? Ooh, I had a couple here. Uh just wanna say thank you, Josh,
17: for uh doing this call tonight. Um, I think one of my call or one of my questions was you all, you've been saying that Oklahoma is a tier one program, which I guess is an arguable uh there. But uh my question is if you have Oklahoma as a tier one program, how could you not have Notre Dame as a tier one program after they've been to the playoff twice? Uh 18 and, or what was it? They were an undefeated season recently. Um, Just kind of would love to hear your uh, thought process behind it.
1: Yeah, so uh, Notre Dame has not been dynamic quarterback in any of those years. They were never a threat to win a championship because of that. I think the quality of roster at Oklahoma is better than the quality of the roster at Notre Dame right now. Now, I'm a dude who's high on Notre Dame. I'm not trashing Notre Dame whatsoever. Notre Dame is a very solid top tier two program for me. So let me qualify this by saying that I view Oklahoma as superior because I think um, I wouldn't give a huge edge at head coach. I love Brian Kelly, so I wouldn't say it like that. I would say that the recruiting apparatus right now at Oklahoma is it's marginally better. They have got quarterback figured out, and that's a huge deal in the sport. Obviously, that's the difference in potentially two or three games a year. And so really, those things alone, I could talk for five more minutes. Those things alone are the separators between like when Oklahoma here and moving forward, let me say, now that they've got defense halfway figured out, when they get in a playoff, because of what they are at quarterback every year, they can win a national champion. Until Notre Dame takes that next step at quarterback, that's a team where if they get in the playoff, they've probably maximized the potential of that year's team. Last year is a perfect example.
17: That's fascinating. I mean, I was going to, I definitely see where you're coming from at quarterback and receiver. But when, I mean, along the lines of scrimmage, I would argue that. Notre Dame definitely has an edge, at least offensive and defense. Georgia,
1: Georgia does too. Georgia's got a big offensive line, defensive line edge. What's it done for them? They had Stetson-Bennett on the field last year. So Georgia's, Georgia has been like Notre Dame on steroids. Georgia's had a better version of Notre Dame's roster through elite recruiting. But because they hadn't gotten quarterback figured out, there's been a, a lower ceiling on their potential when they've gotten in these matchups against Alabama, when they've gotten in championship caliber situations like they've they've been there, they've knocked on the door because they got a roster that good. It's it's that one position, that quarterback position that's been the difference in a couple of championships for them versus still looking for one.
17: I see where you're coming from there, but it also did get Georgia a lead over Oklahoma when Oklahoma had the better quarterback uh, with Baker Mayfield. I mean, I would say arguable um, that watching that game that I think that... Throughout the Rose Bowl, I think that uh, the lines of scrimmage at the end of the game were the difference in uh, Georgia beating Oklahoma when I think Notre Dame has closed the gap between um, them and other programs. And I would say that this last time around they beat uh, Clemson pretty handily the first time in the lines of scrimmage. And I would say that, yes, they did get their uh, butts kicked by Alabama. Uh, because of uh, the lack of skills players, uh, lack of corners. But I would say that you can be a tier one program, I would argue, without having uh,
1: the quarterback figure it out. That we got to wholeheartedly disagree on. Today, we got to wholeheartedly disagree on that one. 25 years ago, Alabama's done that in the last decade and a half. They've been tier one without a great quarterback. I think about the time Alabama changed their tune on that is about the time the tune in college football changed on that is how I would put it. So it's still a pretty new concept, but it's, I think it's reality today. That's fair. I mean, you also had Jacob Coker won a championship. Sure did. <laughs> <laughs> so,
3: I mean, it gives Notre Dame a lot of hope going into uh,
17: next season. So we'll
3: see. We'll go to former secretary of the treasury, Alex Hamilton.
1: Beautiful.
9: First of all, I got to say, I'm buying all the Arkansas stock. So there may not be any for you left uh, once I get done. But uh, my question is, you know, talking about culture in Arkansas, and what does it mean when someone like Barry Odom can't get poached by a Texas or, you know, have a big power five head coaching job come calling and he chooses to stay? Um, you know, what does that mean for like coaching staff and even recruiting in the SEC in general? Because, you know, what Sam Pittman's doing down there, I think is, is pretty spectacular
1: it means you've got the same kind of dynamic taking shape that Clemson has. I think certainly people would scoff at that notion because they think I'm comparing Arkansas to Clemson. No, I'm comparing Arkansas's culture right now to the very infancy of when Dabo took over. And Sam Pittman's got a lot in common with Dabo. Like no one, expects, no one expected anything from him. He was an afterthought when he got hired. Dabo was an afterthought when he got elevated to the position of head coach. But yet something funny happened. Like they didn't really care about that. They they built the right culture and people wanted it like people gravitated towards it. No one no one was ever leaving Clemson. No one no one wants to leave Arkansas right now. Well, that means you've got the very beginnings of a rock solid culture, that thing that everyone talks about, but very few people master. That's what they're starting to do there. The big question becomes, obviously, can you hold it together? Can you duplicate that year over year?
3: Oh, appreciate it. Yeah, man. All right. Uh, Next, we're going to go to Christopher. He uh, actually had a softball question. Oh, boy. Yeah. Softball. Um, Nice and fun.
9: Thank you for putting this together. I'd talk college football 12 hours a day if it was an option, but it's not. Um, Give me your favorite stadium experience and your least favorite stadium experience in college football.
1: Oh, man. You're talking about just like in general, the ones I like to go to and don't like to go to? Yeah, I mean, like I had a great experience in Kentucky, right? As a Florida
9: fan. They treated me great. We had a great time. I did not have a great LSU experience. I did
1: not get treated great and I did not have a great time. <laughs> I love LSU now. I, I granted I'm in a different part of the building than you would be, but I love LSU. Hey, let me tell you something now. Florida, if you're a if you're on the road media beat, like I was down there a couple of years ago when they played Auburn. The visiting media accommodations for field level folks, if you're on the field, um, you can't see the closet over here. It's about the size of this closet. And it was about 94 degrees that day. So that was rough. And there are a lot of people in our industry that don't shower regularly. I'm telling you. So like there, that day was brutal. It wasn't because of Florida per se, just a perfect confluence of, of terribleness, cramped quarters, weather, but I love LSU. I'll tell you another place I I fell in love with immediately was Texas A&M only been there one time. Uh, but that was, that, and I went there when I think they played Bama that day and Bama blew them out. But I just thought to myself, man, if I could be here when they are good, like when they played Clemson that time a couple of years ago, I wish I would have been there for that. But those, those are, and Notre Dame, Notre Dame was like on another level because I so appreciate the history of college football. So when I went up there, uh, Georgia played them and I went up there to cover that game and everybody in South Bend wanted to impress folks from the SEC and they did. I loved it up there, loved my experience. I could not say enough good things about Notre Dame. So those are a few of them.
9: Appreciate it. Thanks,
3: Josh. Yep. All right. Last but not least, we're going to go to Daniel B. We all know that
12: rivalries are the lifeblood of college football nowadays.
3: I mean, yes,
1: they should play it. Yes, yes.
12: They obviously should yes. play it. I and mean, what do you think about like all the politicking and stuff like that? Aggie's over here. Some I know people on both sides that are like, yeah, uh, we should play the game. There are other people who are like, no, we shouldn't help them out. People that say the same things on the Texas side. I mean, people have so many differing opinions and it seems like everybody just hates each
1: other talking about it. Mm-hmm.
12: What do yeah, you yeah. think about all of that going back and forth? You
1: ever heard a casual fan say, Oh, I don't want that game to happen. D- does anyone ever say that?
2: No,
1: no, they don't. It, yeah. Cause there's a bunch of people that you're nameless, faceless. You've heard their names before. You know what their net worth is maybe, but like, it's just people who really don't have much business in the sport, but yet, unfortunately you have to balance it. Cause in a lot of ways, they fund the mechanisms for your program to matter in the sport. It's, it's just a shame, man. It's like everybody who shouldn't be involved gets involved and all the elements that shouldn't be included, get included. And it's, it's so easy. I know it's easy to say, oh, I think they should play the game, which I do. And most people out there probably do. But then like you got people behind the scenes that sort of, you know, they, they straighten out their sweater vest and they pull down their glasses and they look down their nose at you and go, you, you just go back to your nine to five job. Like you don't really understand how this works. And unfortunately, the inverse is true, but yet also, unfortunately, they, um, they can write checks that grant them the ability to look at you that way, at least when it comes to college football scheduling. Mm-hmm. All right, good stuff, guys. So that's a wrap. Uh, that is the first ever Late Kick Show Owners Association, first of hopefully many to come. Really appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe to the channel if you're on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Also subscribe to the Late Kick Podcast, leave five-star reviews. You know what to do. You do it so well. Thank you so much.